All right. Today we are going to see Christian apologetics in a nutshell. Do you see the picture? Do you know why I chose a nutshell? And I'm so glad Gilgal chose that picture. It really expresses my idea, my heart. For you guys, it might seem 22 pages are a lot. But do you know, I just gave you a piece of the iceberg of Christian apologetics. So basically, I'm just giving you an appetizer. And I wish to see some of you that you would grow up and be a Christian apologetics. So let's go to the question. What's a Christian apologetics? Why do we need it? Is it the gospel? Is Christian apologetics the gospel? If it is, how? If not, why are we learning it? Apologetics is a Greek word that came from the word apologia. Okay? And it means defending one's faith and reason and beliefs. Do you remember in the Bible where there is a typical example of Christian apologetics? Anyone? I'll give you the book to try to remember the story. It's in Acts. There is a very vivid example of Christian apologetics in the book of Acts. Does anyone remember the story? You remember Acts 17? You can start from 22 until verse 34. Paul went to witness to Aribagus Paulus. He was one of the Roman officers. He was one of the Roman officers. Actually, sorry, I'm, I'm, I'm missing this. Actually, this happened when Paul went into Athens and he saw an inscription that says, unknown God. Okay? He saw the inscription that says, unknown God. Did he say, simply went and say, oh, this is unknown God. You guys are worshipping to a God that you don't know. And did he start to despise them? No. Actually, he said, let me introduce you the God that you don't know. It's for sure the God that we worship has been a mystery throughout the ages, But now through Christ have revealed himself. And I'm here to introduce you to this man, God, Christ, who died, rose, and is in the right hand of God. Do you see how he used the, the, the situation? What did he do? He removed every obstacle that those people had the barriers that those people taught before he could introduce the what? The gospel. So Christian apologetics is basically, it's a field that removes the barriers, the doubts, the fear, the misconceptions of a person before they are introduced to what? The gospel. That's what Christian apologetics is. And can you think how many obstacles we have for a person now to come to God? I'll tell you three major ones. 
I'm not into religion. Ah, I'm not into religion. I hate politics and religion. Is that true? Religion is a traditional thing. It's the ages of ancient times. I, I, don't, I don't want to do anything with it. Religion is very intolerant. So I don't want to be intolerant and judgmental. So I'm not going there. A person can do whatever they want. I'll respect it. Interesting ideology. But do you know everyone has a religion? Even the atheist. Everyone has what? A religion. Even the what? The atheist. How? Let's define the word religion. Do you know what the, the word religion means? It's a Latin word. That, I mean, that comes from the, the word religio. Basically, it means what? Logical argument and beliefs constructed. That's what the religion means. So if someone has a logical argument and understanding and preferences, he has what? Religion. It might include God or it might exclude God. It might include humanity or it might include just himself. But that's his religion. When we think of religion, most of the time we think of beliefs that's related only with God. No. Every belief system that we have is your religion. If I give you a scenario, this would be it. Every one of us, we have glasses and lenses by which we see the world around us, whether we like it or not, whether we realize it or not. That's why we choose some people more than we do others. That's why we choose some education more than others. That's why we choose some of the ethics or moral laws in our life more than we do others. So there is no grounded argument for the concept that says this is religious and this isn't. Everybody is. So when we talk about concepts and ideas and beliefs, we are basically talking about worldview. I think you guys are familiar about this concept, world view. It's the lens, it's the glasses through which you see the history, the, the structure, the environment, the people around you. And your world view becomes your religion. Your world view becomes your religion. So before we proceed, I'm just warming up a bit, bit by bit, so I want you guys to, to pace with me. Think about what your worldview is. If your worldview is your glasses or your lenses by which you see the world around you, what does your worldview look like? What kind of worldview do we have? Let's start with the small things. Your worldview with your friend. Your worldview in your education, your worldview with your parents, your worldview in your purpose, 
What would you want to do? That's your worldview. But when you go to the main ones, we have this concept that we say the core, the core beliefs of worldview that construct the worldview. And that defines the meaning of life. Do we see quite a lot of people say, my life doesn't have a meaning. I'm lost. They are not lost in the meaning of life. They are lost in the worldview they already constructed in your life. You can't have a meaning in life without constructing your worldview. What kind of lens are you wearing? It's as if someone who is short-sighted is wearing a glass or long-sighted and he's wondering, I can't see. And the other person is, he doesn't have a short-sightedness nor long-sightedness, but he wears a glass with a degree and says, my head is dizzy. Oh yeah, for sure. He got the wrong one. I'm not really into education. I don't see the value in it. Check your, the way you see your lenses. It affects us in every way that we don't even imagine. But how, many time, how, how much time do we take to discover and to build our worldview? That's all we got. That's all we got. So what's the meaning of your life? Let's go to the first page. I'll give you bits and pieces, but the, the reading would be for you guys, okay? Humanity from long time ago, they have been looking for two things, knowledge that's applicable and ecstasy. You know the word ecstasy? Pleasure, fulfillment. We all, Without exception, we have been chasing for a knowledge dependable and for ecstasy. But the paradox is, the more we have knowledge and the more that we believe we are emotionally getting fulfilled, the more void we have in our heart. And the more emptiness we feel in our life. Am I, am I just making up these assumptions? Let's see our stats. How many suicides do we have in a year? How many drug abuse, self-abuse do we have? Leave about the others. How many self-abuse do we have in a year? Go and check it. It's surprisingly high. And it's getting higher and higher. The more we think we are sophisticated, the more we are coming to be fools. But it seems we don't realize it. You know Albert Einstein, yeah? Albert Einstein. Okay. You know what he said? The quote is there. How did he define insanity? Doing something again and again. And what do you do? Yeah. You're doing the same thing, but you expect a different thing. Nothing happens. And you say, well, it's not working but you're not changing, you do it again. Oh, no, no, it's not helping. You do it again. 
I'm not changing, yet you do it again. How many of us do we have friends that we know they're not going to help us, but still we have them? Yeah. Do you know what the Bible says about that kind of association? Bad friendship spoils what? A good character. Investing yourself in, into a friend whom you want to change is one thing. But associating yourself there and expecting a different result is insanity. The first one is sacrifice. The second one is insanity. Does it mean we have always to associate with people who are good? No, that's not what he's saying. So what does your worldview look like? So in order to understand where we are going wrong, we have first to define the concept of meaning of life. How would you guys define life if it's going to have a meaning? Don't read what I already wrote. I want your perception. How would you guys define life would have a meaning? What does life need for it to have a meaning? Why is the amount expensive? Why, how would you define its value? Why is it expensive? It's not only rare. It takes a lot of energy and time to get it. It has a strength, it's unbrokeable. Its structural design is unique. Its structural design is unique. So I brought the example of diamond because it's very valuable. Because it's very valuable, that's why it has a good price. And that good price gives us what? A meaning. That's why we want it in what? In our wedding ring, as a decoration. If someone has all the benefit of money to buy, that's why they buy it. It gives you what? Value. It gives you weight. When someone has a diamond and goes in, the first thing people perceive is what? Hey, that guy or that lady is what? Rich. So does it have a meaning? Yeah. Surprisingly, we don't know if that person is rich or not. <laughs> Do we? No. But the way we perceive things gives it a meaning. The way we perceive things give it a meaning. So shall we see the four points that define meaning? Why are we here for? Is that only me or sometimes you guys ask that question too? Why am I here? Do you know when we ask that question? When we are scared, confused, afraid. Why am I here in this world? I don't have a lot of friends. I don't have a lot of buddies around. What's going on? What am I missing here? Why am I here? Do, do I deserve to leave? Does my life has meaning? The second question is significance. And we all look for that surprisingly. Does my contribution mean anything to anyone here? Or to the whole being as a whole. The third one is what? Value. The third one is what? 
Tali. Do I mean anything? Do I mean anything? And the last one is ecstasy or enjoyment. So if those four questions could be answered in our life, surprisingly we'll have meaning. I'm not saying the definition of meaning only encompasses the four points. That's not my argument. But at least it has four, four of them. Does your life have a value in this world? And do you have joy for it? How many of us are we really happy that we are here in this world? Not because we have joy day by day, even in our sufferings and shortcomings. How many of you are like, Yay! I like it even when I make mistakes. I'm learning. I'm falling, but I'm picking up myself. I love it. How many of us do we really have that mentality? Oh, I really messed up big time, but I'm learning from it. Oh, I broke that big time. That's worth it. Or do, are, are we like panicky people? Oh, 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 things are going wrong. I'm doomed. That means your purpose, your significance, and your value are not right because they are not giving you the fulfillment of heart. Something is wrong. I'll jump and tell you one thing. One of the best thing about Christ is this. Do you know the joy that I have in Christ and the joy that he has seeing me never changes. Whether you are walking right or not, it doesn't change. You, 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 you might be wondering, how come? You guys, you guys don't have kids. I'm a father of four. My youngest is two years old. When he started walking, he messed up our living room. I can't tell you how many stuff he broke. I can't tell you how many stuff he messed up. But I don't remember a day I was like, better you were not born. No. 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 Do you know what I think when I see my son? He's learning to walk. I don't see the mess. I see that he's learning to walk. And he grabs my book. And does all sorts of things he couldn't even imagine. And sometimes I lose my books. But I'm so glad because he's learning to write. Does it cost me? Oh, yes, definitely. But it has beauty. It has beauty. And when God saw us in Christ, he saw us helpless. Whatever we do is a mess, even after we come. And we are in Christ. But he is so exceedingly joyful about each and every one of us, just because we are learning the true perspective, the true worldview that he gave us through his word. And we are learning day by day. My daughter is learning. She's making a mess, but she's learning. 
my son is falling, but at least he's learning how to do it. Because we see God as a joy breaker, that's why we want to hide. I don't want to do anything with him. So I want you to try to see how you have purpose, significance, value, and fulfillment without the Christ that we worship and with him. And see the difference. See the difference. So in order to find out, in order to find out the meaning of life, we have to see different types of worldviews. Okay? I'm not going to cover all of them. They are exhaustive. But I think we are going to see six of them. I'll be fast here. So the first one is what? Materialism. Yeah? So the next page, you can see life seems through the eyes of materialism. So this is people who have a glasses or lenses called materialism. The lens by which they see the world is through the lens called what? Materialism. Do you know what materialistic persons say? There is nothing called spiritual. Okay, everything is what? Matter and energy. So if a person is going to be happy, all they need is what? Matter and energy. In other words, you have to possess a lot and you have to be powerful to be happy. Those are the two things that you need in order to be happy in this world. My question to a materialistic person is, how would you define your emotions? How would you define love? How would you define logic? True and false, wrong and right. There is no answer. Because all they see is what? Matter and energy. So if a materialistic person, if you ask him, I'm sad, all he will say to you is, that's illusion. If you tell him, I'm so excited, we are just having an illusion. There is no such a thing. So all they want to grab is matter. All they want to do is have a lot of materials and power. And do you know what that develops through time? Greedness. You'll have Mat materials, they are not enough, you want more. You will have power, it's not enough, you want more. So that's what materialist, materialist person is. So some of us, we are a combination of all the worldviews. So some of us who might say, you know, I'm not materialistic, check better. You will find a lot of things there. Be critical to find yourself. Analyze yourself. A simple question is, what is the very thing that if I take away from you, that your day will be ruined? And if it does, that shows me you're a materialistic person. Some of us, it's our phone. We can't live without a phone. Not even for an hour. Some of us, it's our social medias. We like people liking us, giving us hearts, resources. So basically, do you know what we are doing, the people? We are making the people materials. So our materials are the people. 
some of us, it's our clothes, how we look, how we dress, how we walk, or the shoes that we do. If it's not Nike, I'm not wearing. <laughs> really. So let's check ourselves. When, especially when you read home, make marks, points on the page, and you see yourself well. The second one is, the second one is, Hedonism. Hedno means what? Pleasure. It's a Greek word. So a people who is hedonist, all they are looking for is pleasure. That's why we are indulged in a lot of things in this world. Some of us, we are indulged in alcohol. Because it makes us what? Exuberant. It does work for a moment. Surprisingly, what we don't know is, after that part fades away, Depression comes in. The hangover is, hasn't left me yet. What do you expect? And some of us are into abusing substances. Others are into abusing ourselves. And some people still find their joy by abusing other people. Can you think of anything that people find pleasure by abusing other people? Any example? Slavery. Do you think slavery is still around? It is. Slavery is still around. It is around. It just has changed its name and the environment it works around. That's all, it's still there. So are we hedonists? Just for the sake of our pleasure, do we indulge into substances or abuse ourselves or any other people? If we are, then we have a hedonist kind of understanding. The next one is, Humanism. The next one is humanism. People don't want to call it a religion, but at this time, the biggest religion, and which is growing very fast, is humanism. People who are humanistic can be atheist or can be agnostic. Atheist is a person who doesn't believe in God. Agnostic is who doesn't care if there is God or not. Humanists believe, the main belief about humanists is two. And surprisingly, quite a lot of Christians are humanists by nature, and they don't know it. What do I mean by humanists? They say the central part of the whole universe is who? Man. I am the center of everything. That's what they teach. Have you ever seen books and preachings that say, you can do it, you are the master of everything, you can manipulate this, you can, that's humanism. And the, the second most powerful idea that they have is, whatever is right for me, might be wrong for you. So they don't believe in moral laws. Not only that, 
I'll give you the most, the biggest challenge. If a community agrees that whatever they believe is right, and another community believes that's wrong, they don't have the right to say that's wrong. So the decisive person in a humanistic view is an individual or a community. Can you see how much, how dangerous that is? It's like if here we agree to ex exterminate you guys, you're done. We are right. The only thing that would stop is the reason. If the reason that we have and makes us and brings us into argument, we can do it. That's humanism. So humanism, it's nice when you hear it first, but if you go deeper into it, it has a problem. So I would call humanism the belief of a sunny day. You know what that means? Humanism is the belief of a sunny day. It means everybody believes humanism when everything is good. But when one person comes and destroys your comfort, all of a sudden you say, where is the morality in that? Why are you doing that? So it's a belief of a sunny day. It means it only works if everything is going. The third one is, sorry, the, the fourth one is what? Pantheism. Those are the people whom you hear saying, Mother Earth, the universe is God. Those are the people who say what? Mother Earth or the universe is God. That's why they say, hey, I'm setting my vibe with the universe. I'm setting my vibe with the universe. Don't disturb me. I'm trying to connect with the Mother Earth. Because they see the whole entity of the universe as God. You know what that means? If the whole universe is God, including human beings, it means I'm part of God. And if I'm part of God, I can decide whatever I want. But the problem is that is they believe also individualistic idea. It's an illusion. That's what they believe. So if I'm a part of God, it only works if we are united. Is it possible for humanity to unite? Not in a million years. Do you know why? There is a sickness called what? Sin. There is a sickness, a deadly sickness called sin. And it abides in each and every one of us. So there is no possibility that works. The fifth one is nihilism. Nael means nothing. So those people believe, do whatever you wish to do each day because life doesn't have what? Meaning. So if you feel like dancing today, dance because even your dancing is meaningless. Yeah. If you feel like shouting and praising, please do it because enjoy that time, but still meaningless. 
if you feel like helping out people going and even uh, trying to help out homeless people, please do it. At least enjoy it at that time because finally it is in English. It doesn't have any meaning. That's why those people who believe like that are very dangerous because they do everything and nothing at the same time. They do what? Everything and nothing at the same time. Outside of the universe, he created everything. And not only he created it, he also sustains it. And then they believe also man and woman are made in the image of what? God. And they all, monotheism also believes God or the transcendent who is outside of everything gave or installed in humanity his morals. That's why even you see a kid, whether it's in China or in Eritrea or it's in Latin America, wherever you go, we have the conscience. Everybody has the same conscience. We know the basic rights and wrongs. Because God installed in us all. The only problem about monotheism is there are three big religions or belief systems that believe monotheism. Islam, Judaism, and Christianity. So the next question would be, okay, if monotheism is right, which one of those religions is right? And how can they prove that there is a God who is beyond, outside of the universe? So how do we prove that God exists? Actually, pardon my words, we can't prove the existence of God. But we have arguments, evidences that show us the existence of God. Because God is not a material that you take into a lab and prove it. If you are going to prove it's a material, and you take it to the lab. But evidences are something that you can see and shows that there is a relationship that shows there is a transcendent being. So what are the three main arguments that show us the existence of God? The first one is cosmological argument. This is also called the cause argument. May I have your name, sir? Chris. Chris. Is this drink yours? It just appeared. Did it just appear? Uh, I took it on one day. You brought it. No, no, no. It just came. It just happened and it's there. How would I know you brought it? What evidence do you have that you brought it? Me. <laughs> I like it. <laughs> Me. Your bag is there. I'm not trying to challenge you. I'm just trying to make a point. Quite a lot of people believe the universe just happened. And we don't believe that our drinks just happened. 
to come where we are. But surprisingly, we are comfortable enough to believe the universe just came to, into existence, as it is. For everything that happens in the world has a cause. Pierus, did your hair just happen like that? What happened to it? I brushed You did it. So you are the cause of that arrangement. Nothing in the world happens as it is. Cow, and the cow comes with, I don't see any cow. It just can't come by itself. There needs to be a cause for things to come around. There is always a cause. And if the cause is not outside of the universe, let me show you. Is this tissue part of me? It's outside of me. So if I'm going to bring it and use it, I'm not part of the tissue. I'm outside the tissue so I can. If God is part and parcel of the universe, how did he make it? Repeat it. Is this tissue part of me? Is it inside of me? So it's like saying I'm using my, let's say, my chest to clear out my face. I can't even do it. If I'm going to function properly in something, it should be outside of me. So the, the tissue is outside of me. I'm picking it up and I'm using it. If God is part and parcel of the universe, how did he made it and create it? God has never been part of energy and matter. He's immaterial. He's outside. That's why he created material world. Okay? But if God is outside of the universe, does it mean he is there alone and we are here alone? How are we going to know that who he is? What does he look like? That creates a lot of questions, doesn't it? If God created the universe but is not part of the universe, how, am I, how are we going to know who he is? We will deal with that later. But the first thing that shows you, for any cause, for anything to happen, it needs what? First cause. In physics, you, I believe you guys, you all know about Bing Bang Theory. The universe came from a condensed atom. Good. My question is, who created that atom? How did it happen? Boom. It came and then the universe was created. Interesting. So we need a first cause for things to happen. That's called cosmological argument. For me, the best part I like is the second one, the design argument. Or it's called teleological argument. This argument has three parts. Biological, physical, and fine-tuning. Let me see. How come you have a nice shirt or T-shirt? How come it happened to be nice? Uh, Where did you get it? At the thrift store. You bought it? Yes. Good. And uh, did it just happen or someone designed it? Probably. 
Actually, definitely shamans should design it. The probable thing is you might not know who designed it, but someone designed it. Thank you. If something has order, complexity, there must be a design. I'll say it again. If something has order, beauty, or complexity, it should have what? A designer. Do you guys, our eyes is a wonder? Do you think about your eyes? How it functions? It's amazing. It's amazing. Light rays come through my eye openings of pupil. And it goes through the lens. And the lens converges to the retina. And then the, from the retina, the nerve cells picks up the signals. And the signals take it to the brain. And the brain interprets and comes back to my eye and tells me what I'm looking at. It's so amazingly designed. And I believe I came from evolution. How interesting. I see such a complex order, beauty. And I believe, uh oh, no, 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 don't worry about where you came from. You just came from uh, evolutionary. You just changed it bit by bit over thousands and millions of years. At least I have a question though. If that is true, how come? Since humanity arrived in this world, didn't our eyes change a bit? Oh, yeah. If we are always progressing and changing, there must be a change. It might not be huge because it's not a lot of years, but at least we should see a bit of change. There is, I'm not against adaptation. We adapt, but evolution is a different theory. Evolving is a different theory. So when you see your eye, that's a biological what? That's a biological design. Think of this one. Plants, throughout the day, they give us oxygen. And we breathe out carbon dioxide. Okay? And during the day, what we exhale as carbon dioxide, who takes it? Plants. And during the night, Plants take the opposite. They take oxygen and they give carbon dioxide. What an order. But we think it's a mere chance. So if we see all our biological design, it's an amazing. Do you know we are only at 3% of understanding our mind? 3%. That's what we know about our mind. And we are bold enough to say God doesn't exist. We don't even study our mind. The second one is physical design. Do you know how if the earth is a bit closer or a bit farther from where we are from the sun now? life at all wouldn't exist. At all wouldn't exist. Another part, I'll, I'll show an example. If there were no galaxies, it means there would not be stars. And if there are not stars, there won't be planets. And if there are no planets, Earth will not be there. 
and earth is not there, life won't be here. For earth to be comfortable for human beings, it needed all the planets and the stars and the galaxies around it. So that it will be, it could support bio life. Does that show design or does that show mess? What's the design? And from your physics, I believe you know there are a lot of forces involved in our Earth. Gravity is one. Centrifugal force is another one. You know what that is? Centripetal force. Gravitational. I believe you all know those things. If any of those constants would increase or decrease by the size of our one single hair, the whole universe will collapse. It's very tuned. Our Earth is tilted, yeah? 23 degrees on one side and 23 degrees on the other side. So our Earth always goes 23 degrees to the north and then it goes to the other side south. If the tilt will increase or decrease, it will be too cold or too warm for anyone to survive. If the moon would be closer, the tidal waves would be extreme and it will wipe us out of the whole Earth. But they are constant. Doesn't the Bible say, you sustained everything through your word? If all those things are not changing, there must be a transcendent being holding everything together. But there, is a, there are questions that people ask. Wait, 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 wait. What about volcanoes? What about tectonic plates? What about... That, that's not an order. It's a disorder. How do we answer those questions? I'm not going to give you an answer for that. Because I want you to search for yourself. Read. At least I give you an appetizer. I want you guys to read. So all this is called what? The design argument. And the last argument is what? The moral argument. The moral argument. Without anybody seeing us, when we do wrong, I'm not talking about us who are grown and are influenced by many things. I'm talking about the child. They sense wrong and right. Where did they get it? It's surprising. A child, if you take in Africa or in Asia or in Europe or in Latin America, you find the same thing. Because it's installed in us by the transcendent. Without God, there can't be any moral life or moral laws. So this is what we are saying. The best worldly view to have is to believe in God because we can show the evidence that God exists. But the biggest question comes, how do we know God? Which God are we going to follow? Because Islams believe that. The Jewish believe that. And Christianity by itself is, Christianity by itself is divided. 
So which God are we going to follow? Are we going to follow the God of Catholics, Orthodox, Evangelists, Pentecostals? Which one? My answer is one. The God of the Bible. Not the God of a denomination, but the God of the Bible. But you might ask me, how do we prove that the Bible is true? Might be a feeble, might be a myth. How do we know that the Bible is reliable? Let's finish that one and then I think we'll go to questions if you have. The first evidence we have is empirical. If you go to the table, then you'll be able to follow me easily. Go to this table. You will see empirical and archaeological. Then there is a table. I'll try to explain the table. So if you see the authors, some of you in English major, I think you have studied or read about Homer. Then we have the Herodotus, Plato, Caesar, Tacitus. And Thucydides. And then we have the new the New Testament and the Greek New Testament. So all those things, they are iniquities, antiquities, sorry. They are antiquities. You know what antiquities mean? Something written very long time. Do you see the date in which it was written in the early manuscript? For example, if you say for Homer, it was written between what? 800 BC. But the earliest manuscript that was found was what? 400 BC. How many years in between? 400. So the earliest manuscript was found, discovered after 400. Go to the New Testament. It was written AD 5200. And the first manuscript was found? 130. A maximum of how many years? 80 years. In history, quite a lot of historians accept the top ones as very credible. But when it comes to the New Testament, they argue about it. The difference in the, in, in the years is surprisingly amazing. The first one is 400. The second one is... 1,350. The third one is 1,300. 950, 400, 750. The only one that's very close and to the, to the happening, to the event happening in the earth is the New Testament. Only 50 years. But what do people say? It's not credible. They don't have any problem believing a manuscript. The event that happened and the story that was written has thousands of years or hundreds of years. But when we come to the New Testament, we have only 50 to 80 years, and we say, how do we know those people are right? 
Maybe something changed. That's what we call empirical data. Okay? The second one is what? Archaeological. We go back. The second one is archaeological. Archaeology without history is nothing. Archaeology without history is what? Nothing. Let's say you find an archaeological site, but you don't know the history. What's the point of it? Nothing. So, Bible is not only about teachings and laws. It's not about only prophecies. It's also history. Christianity is a historic faith because it happened. So, if we can prove, if we can prove the events, the places, and the people there, then it gives us a reliable source to believe the rest. Archaeology doesn't, uh, sorry, doesn't prove the Bible, but it gives us evidences that those things happened. So I have given you there, I have given you there some examples. For example, I, I believe it was until 1960, if I'm not mistaken. Nobody believed about Sodom and Gomorrah. Nobody. Everybody believed 1960. Quite a lot of non-Christian historians and archaeologists, they believe that was a myth. What happened? In 1961, if I'm not mistaken still, Italian, Italian archaeologists found the Tel Mardik, the current Ibla. There was a lot of tablets there. And in that tablet, there was an inscription that says what? Sodom and Gomorrah. So they found out that it's a historically true places, that there were places called Sodom and Gomorrah. The second one is the ossuary. The ossuary of Caiaphas was found just outside of Jerusalem. Do you know what ossuary is? We don't have that culture, especially as Eritreans and Ethiopians, we don't have that culture. But there are cultures who collect, especially Israelites used to do that. They bury someone who died after time, after the, the body has gone, decayed, they collect the what? The bones. And they put it in a box. And that's called a jewelry. So the bones of Caiaphas. Do you know who Caiaphas is? The high priest. The high priest. So the bones of the high priest was found in 1990. And do we have Caiaphas in the Bible? We do. So that proves something. That was real. And also, the Sergius Paulus inscription corroborated this support about Acts 13.7. The inscription was found of the Sergius Paulus too. So some, those are some of the examples of archaeological findings. There are more. You can read them for yourselves.
I'll take a bit of time in reading this one. I want you guys to go with me. Non-Christian resources. Uh, I want you guys to read with me. I'm not going to read all of them, but I will read about the Roman historian, Tacitus, AD 55 to 117. Okay, follow me. We'll read together. He says, this is what he wrote. Nero fastened the guilt, means he took hold of the guilt, on a class hated for their abomination called Christians by the populace. That means by the people who live there. Christos, from whom the name had its origin, suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hand of Pontus Pilatus. In a most mischievous superstition, thus checked for the moment, again broke out not only in Judea, the first source of evil, but even in Rome, where all things hideous and shameful from every part of the world find their center and become popular. Is this historian a believer? No. What is he saying? He is confirming that Christ was crucified. And what do we say to him? Thank you. That's all we needed. That the event was historic. Christ, in their name is saying Christos, he was crucified in the hands of the Romans. But not only that, the people who followed Christ, called Christians, they are not only now in Judea, now they are, their number is increasing also in what? In Rome. A non-believer talking about Christ. There are many sources. Check for yourselves. I'm not going to go in detail. So we have seen the empirical data. We have seen the archaeological data. We have seen the non-Christian sources. The claims of the Bible, I'm not going to go there. The, the Bible claims that it is the word of God. So I want you to do it by yourselves. Read the verses and find out and answer them. You have space to fill that out, please do. But I would like to spend a bit of time in number five and number six. In number five and number six. This, this, this is the thrill of my heart for me. For, from all of those, the best evidences for me is number five and six. Now, I want you to be a bit of mathematicians and think about this. The Bible is written by 40 different people from different walks of life over a span of 1,500 years. My question to you guys is, how are they able to write a unified, conceptual ideas? How did they do it? let alone over the span of 1,500 years. If I would teach you something and ask you to write about it, I'm quite sure you guys will not write the same thing. I'm quite sure of that. Henoch, from the very beginning, spoke about Christ. Abraham saw Christ. Jacob, in his dream, saw Christ. David talked about his kingdom. 
Isaiah talking about his suffering. Jeremiah talking about his Christ. Amos talks about the promises. How come they did it? They were all talking about one thing. Indeed, it's not the only topic they spoke about, the events that was happening at that time, the mistakes they were doing, but they always talked about the promise of God. I want you guys to think about it a bit. 40 people from different walks of life. Some of them were. Can you tell me this? Can you tell me who was a shepherd? Except David. Leave David. Because he was a king. When I say a king, you guys are going to come and say, David, give me someone who was a shepherd and who wrote in the Bible. Moses wasn't a shepherd when he was writing. He was a shepherd until God called him. But once God called him, he became what? A leader. I'm talking about someone who wrote the Bible while he was shepherding. Okay? Amos. Amos was a shepherd. Amos was a shepherd. Okay? Who was a cup bearer? Huh? Jeremiah? Who was a cup bearer? Daniel? No. Nehemiah. Thank you. Nehemiah. He was a cup bearer. Who was a fisherman? Most of them? Apostles. Not all, but most. All right. Who was a doctor? Luke. Who was a tent maker? Except Paul. I know you guys would say that. Except Paul. In the Bible, who else was a tent maker? Achilles and Priscilla. Yeah, both of them were also tent makers. So all of those, okay, who wrote in the Bible while he was in the dungeon? Paul of Tarsus, one. Anyone else? You know what dungeon means? It's not only a prison. Underground prison. Okay? It's not only a prison. It's an underground prison. Who else? Who else? Paul is one. Who else was in the dungeon when he was writing? John. When he wrote Revelation. Because he was arrested in the island of what? Patmos. It was a dungeon. Okay. So look at them. They are from different walks of life. But talking about the same thing. The kingdom of God. It's really amazing. This really thrills and warms my heart. Because nobody could do it. None. With such coherence, with such articulation, with such attempt, nobody could do it. If it was not God at the back of it, this is not doable. And finally, the last part. This is for me the cream of the crop. The prophecies of the Bible. This is the cream of the crop for me. Do you know 27% of the Bible is prophetic? 27, that's a lot. 
you wouldn't find any book which is one quarter of the book being prophet. How many prophecies? 1,817 prophecies have been given in the Bible. A total of 1,817. And now listen about this. Out of all those prophecies, around 500, around 351 prophecies were about Christ. How many prophecies? 351. Conservatively, let's, let's say 300. But 351 prophecies were about Christ. Think about this. This is the prophecy from the beginning. What did, what did God say to Adam and Eve? A seed shall come out of the woman. And what will he do? He crushed the head off the serpent. And what would the serpent do? He would bruise his ankle. Who is, who is it talking about? Christ. So the first one who gave prophecy is God by himself. And from the very beginning until the very end. There are a lot of prophecies about Christ. How many of them did I say? 351 prophecies about Christ. Most of the prophecies out of 1,817, most of them are done. The remaining are less than 200 prophecies. The remaining are less than 200 prophecies now. Most of them are already done. Do you know why we don't like to read Old Testament? Old Testament, sorry. You know why we don't, we don't read it a lot? Because we don't know the history. If you would know the history and relate it to the prophecy, you would find yourself glued to it. It's amazing. For me, for the sake of learning, I go to New Testament. But if I'm going to see the reliability of what God has been doing throughout history, I go to the Old So the Bible has two kinds of prophecies, messianic and non-messianic. What does messianic mean? Related to Christ. And non-messianic means not related to Christ. Think of this. What's the possibility or the chance of one man fulfilling 351 prophecies? Yeah. The chances of fulfilling 351 prophecies by a single person. I have given you the, the probability of eight prophecies being fulfilled. Do you know what the chance is? 100 quadrillion. <laughs> Only eight. Eight prophecies. We are talking mathematically. 100 quadrillion. That's the chance. Of eight prophecies being singled out by the same person. You couldn't even think of it. What about if it is 351? 100 quadrillion means the power of 17. 100, the power of 17. No, no, no. For the eight prophecies to be fulfilled in the world from the No, no, no. This is a probability. This is a probability. Let's say we have eight prophecies. 
Okay? They are given now by different people. And let's go 2,000 years. Okay? From 2,000 years until now, the probability of one person singling out eight prophecies would be 100 quadrillion. That's the chance. Just for eight. What about if it's going to be 351? So if it's not God behind it, it's not possible. Now I hope from the non-Messianic, this will be an appetizer for you, hopefully. I will give you two examples of prophecies from the book of, one from the book of Ezekiel and the other one from the book of Daniel. In Ezekiel 26, okay, you read it at home, I'm not going to go detail. From verse 3 to 14 and verse 21, Ezekiel prophesied about Tyre. That was a kingdom at that time. Now, I want you to imagine the years. Ezekiel was 591 BC when he started his ministry. And when did the prophecy about Tyre got fulfilled? Almost completely after 323 BC. BC first. And then when the, the Muslims came in AD, not close to AD, not before AD, before AD. So around how many years, basically? This prophecy took almost 300-something years. What did Ezekiel say about the prophecy? This is what he said. This is God prophesying to Tyre. Listen to me carefully. He's saying to the kingdom of Tyre, I will bring many nations to destroy you. How many? Many nations. And then he said, I'll bring King Nebuchadnezzar first. King of Tyre, the kingdom was divided into two. Mainland and the island. So King Nebuchadnezzar came and destroyed the mainland. Before he did that, he already conquered Jerusalem and the, the surrounding area. But the kingdom of Tyre was fighting firmly and it took him 13 years to bring it down. So he destroyed the mainland. Why? They were having 13 years. Do you know what they were doing? They were taking all their rich to the island, the second part of the kingdom. So when they came in, the soldiers found nothing. Because they were very angry. Do you know what they did to the mainland? They demolished it. So the whole city was demolished in the mainland. Is the prophecy fulfilled? No. Still, what's remaining? The island. Then, Alexander the Great came in 323 BC, if I'm not mistaken. Check your books. Okay? Alexander the Great came, and you know what he did? He used the debris of the mainland and filled the water so that he could cross to the island. He made 60 meters wide because it was six or a, bit, a bit over 6 meters deep. So he filled it and he made 60 meters wide. That way he was able to cross to the island. 
In doing this, he was able to clear out all the debris of the mainland, and it became a flat land. You know what Isaiah, uh, sorry, Ezekiel said about that? Your land will be flat enough that fishermen will lay their nets on the mainland. Still to this day, that city is not rebuilt. Fishermen use it as a place to lay their nets. Still today. That's the God we worship. Wait. It's not done there. So Alexander the Great took all the treasures and the wells. He didn't destroy it. Then the next time, there was one kingdom, I forgot its name, and finally the Muslims came. I don't think so. It's the Greeks. Let me, hear, let me find out. The final are the Muslims who came and who fulfilled all of the prophecy. So, Alexander the Greek was from Greek. That's why he says the Greeks. No, it was the Antignos. The Antignos came in three. They were autonomous, though. They were their own kingdom in 314 BC. And finally, in AD 129, the Muslims took control of the island. What did God say from the very beginning? I'll bring nations. I mean, do we see here? I mean, do we see here? Persia, that's the first one, the organizer. Greek, Alexander the Great. And then Antigonus. And finally, the Muslims. Until this time, there is only a very small, small village that's used for fishing. But it was never rebuilt again. And that's what the prophecy said and it happened. It started in 585 and it was finished. No, it took 600 something years for all that prophecy to happen. In order to save time, read it and I will talk about it. The second one is about where we find Daniel. That's concerning Alexander the Great. Do you know when Daniel gave this prophecy? 200 years before Alexander the Great was born. Daniel gave the prophecy how many years? 200 years before Alexander the Great was born. This is what happened. Alec uh, Daniel talked about four kingdoms first. And the fourth kingdom would be very rich. That's Xerxes. It's in the Bible in Daniel. And then it says another very swift king will rise. And it was talking about what? Alexander the Great. How do we know? It says when, when he is uh, removed from the kingdom, his kingdom is not going to be given to his heirs, but it will be given to outsiders. Do you know what Alexander the Great said? Who is going to succeed you? He said, the strongest one. And four of his generals took over. Four of his generals. Not his heirs. Four of his generals. One of his generals took Egypt. 
the other one took most of Greece, and the other one took most of Turkey, and the last one took Mesopotamia, which is the area around Iraq. So all of them has four. It was given 200 years, and it was done as it was given. I'm just giving you a bit of the Bible prophecies that we have. So if you study it, you'll be surprised. But when you read it, just don't read it and say, oh, the prophecy is fulfilled. Find out what it is talking about. It really happened in the Bible. It, sorry, in history. If it happened, how did it happen? And it will teach you a lot. So what does this prophecy tell us? There is a God, not only who made and who sustained the whole universe, but a God who has a purpose, a God who has a plan, a God who ordained the end from the beginning, a God who knows each and every one of us, even before we are conceived in the womb of our moms. If I'm going to worship, I'm going to worship this God. He's full of evidence just all around us. If he could ordain, take this, if he could ordain what Alexander the Great will do, when he will come and what will happen to it, and finally that his kingdom even not, will not last, because Daniel saw a better kingdom. He saw a kingdom that didn't come from the hands of any man. He saw a kingdom which was a small rock or stone and finally covered the whole earth. I want to be part of that. I don't want to be a part of a kingdom that comes and goes. I want to be a part of a kingdom that remains and grows and rules. And that's called the kingdom of God. So if God knows this much, my question comes back to you guys. How much does he know about you? If he could speak about 600 years prophecies that come to pass after 600 years, what's your age for him? 80, 90? It's nothing. My question and my invitation for you guys is this. Know the God of the Bible. Take a time to know the God of the Bible. When you take time to know the God of the Bible, you will find yourself for he will define for you what he has for humanity. What the purpose is. What the significance is. What the value is. And what the ecstasy is for is. The Bible has two parts. We have the Old Testament and the New. The Old has 39 books and the new has 27. And it, it, it is composed of a lot of things. It's composed of history, poetry, apocalypse, that means symbols, letters, genealogy. But surprisingly, if you take it as a whole, you will see who God is and why you are here. But if you take a piece here and a piece 
there. We will have a fragmented, a fragmented picture that will not help us. So I really implore you. The beauty of Christianity is not ministering. The beauty of Christianity is not, is not, is not, is not to be called in to be somebody, whether it's an apostle or a prophet. It's none of that. None of that. The beauty of Christianity is to see him and in seeing him to see yourself. For we are called the image and of who? Of God. Do you know why, what the word image means? Literally, idol. Literally, it means what? Idol. So humans are the idol of who? God. Yeah. Image literally means idol. So what, what God is saying is, most idols are what? They don't see, they don't speak, they don't respond. But God is saying, if I make an idol, I'm not making an idol that doesn't see or listen or respond. I'm making an idol that looks like me. How? I speak, so my idol speaks. I listen, my idol listens. I think, my idol think. I am creative enough, creating something out of nothing. But at least my idol could create something from what I have given. We are idol, it means we represent. We represent who he is. Physical idol doesn't mean, mostly we relate it with idol worship. That's why we are like, what? But idol means representation of someone. So what are we doing? What's our mind filled up with? If there is, would you guys go to the last page? The last page before the part that says introduction. The last page before the part that says introduction. Introduction is the one that talks about God's word, the Holy Bible. The one, the page before it. The page before it. Shall we read together the last part? As your brother, as your brother, my advice is what? To dive and indulge in the Bible. Primarily to do what? To know, to know, to know, to know, to know yourself, to know yourself, or maybe to know technology, maybe to know if it works for you. Maybe if you to know who you are. No, none of all that. To know who? The God of the Bible. And through that, to discover the meaning of your life. The only way you will find the significance, the value, the purpose, and the satisfaction is primarily if you know him. Without knowing him, you will know nothing of yourself. None. Know him first, then you will know yourself. For me, this is true. Read the last part. Nothing is greater than this quest. And nothing is better than its findings. For me, the biggest quest is to know. You might think I know God, and you might be true. You might be right. I may know him better than you guys because you're young. But I still don't know. I don't. 
I really want to know him. Not only from the pages of the Bible, but I want also to experience it's not Because he's not only a God of far, because he's also a God very close than the air that we breathe. He's not a God that only speaks in scriptures. He's also a God that speaks and comes close to you in diverse ways. He's not a God only that gives rules and commandments and says follow. No, 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 no. He's a God who comes when we are broken and mends us, who comes when you are confused and guides us. He is a God who comes and enlightens our ways when it's dark. He's a God who says, I love you. He's a God of love. Until that's cemented and implanted in my heart, it means I don't know. If there is any moment in your life because of your sin, because of all the nonsense that you do, you really doubt the love of God, it means you don't know him. You don't. You don't. If you really know, let me show you a simple example and I'll finish here. I'm your teacher. And I'm teaching you here. If one of you misbehaves, and I'm angry. Would you be like. It's okay he's angry just for now. But he loves me. He cares about me. Or would you be. Uh oh. And. You give space for. Doubt. Fear. And your trust shapes. What about if my daughter was here? When I'm teaching, I'm her teacher. She has a better access than the old guy. When, I'm, when I go home, am I her teacher? I'm her what? I'm her father. It doesn't change. Our Lord is our Lord. Jesus is our Lord. But he's not only my Lord. He's also my brother. But he's not only my brother. He's my savior. He's not only my savior. He's my redeemer. He's not only my redeemer. He's the firstborn of love of God in my life. Not only that. He's the hope of glory that I'm waiting. Oh, oh not only of that. He's my shepherd too. Oh, not only that. He's my king, too, who judged the right judgment for me. But not only that, he's the king of kings and the lord of lords. He's not only my lord and my king, he's the king of the kings and the lord of lords. If we don't know him, we will not know ourselves. So I invite you again and again. Please, please take time to know the God of the Bible.